Section 21 of Invisible Links This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft's Flack A Fallen King, Part 4 Dame Anna Eriksson invited all her old friends. The mechanics' wives from the suburbs and the poor scrub women came to her for a cup of coffee. The same were there who had been with her on the day of her desertion. One was new, Maria Andersson, the captain of the Salvation Army. Anna Eriksson had now been many times to the Salvation Army. She had heard her husband. He always told about himself. He disguised his story. She recognized it always. He was Abraham. He was Job. He was Jeremiah, whom the people threw into a well. He was Elisha, whom the children at the wayside revealed. The pain seemed bottomless to her. His sorrow seemed to her to borrow all voices, to make itself masks of everything it met. She did not understand that her husband talked himself well, that pleasure in his power of fancy played and smiled in him. She had dragged her daughter with her. The daughter had not wished to go. She was serious, modest, and conscientious. Nothing of youth played in her veins. She was born old. She had grown up in shame of her father. She walked upright, austere, as if saying, Look, the daughter of a man who is despised. Look if my dress is soiled. Is there anything to blame in my conduct? Her mother was proud of her. Yet sometimes she sighed. Alas, if my daughter's hands were less white, perhaps her caresses would be warmer. The girl sat scornfully smiling. She despised theatricals. When her father rose up to speak, she wished to go. Her mother's hand seized hers, fast as a vice. The girl sat still. The torrent of words began to roar over her. But that which spoke to her was not so much the words as her mother's hand. The hand writhed. Convulsions passed through it. It lay in hers, limp as if dead. It caught wildly about, hot with fever. Her mother's face betrayed nothing. Only her hand suffered and struggled. The old speaker described the martyrdom of silence. The friend of Jesus lay ill. His sister sent a message to him, but his time had not come. For the sake of God's kingdom, Lazarus must die. He now let all doubting, all slander be heaped upon Christ. He described his suffering. His own compassion tortured him. He passed through the agony of death, he as well as Lazarus. Still he had to keep silence. Only one word had he needed to say to win back the respect of his friends. He was silent. He had to hear the lamentations of the sisters. 
He told them the truth in words which they did not understand. Enemies mocked at him. And so on, always more and more affecting. Anna Eriksson's hand still lay in that of her daughter. It confessed and acknowledged. The man there bears the martyr's crown of silence. He is wrongly accused. With a word he could set himself free. The girl followed her mother home. They went in silence. The girl's face was like stone. She was pondering, searching for everything which memory could tell her. Her mother looked anxiously at her. What did she know? The next day Anna Eriksson had her coffee party. The talk turned on the day's market, on the price of wooden shoes, on pilfering maids. The women chatted and laughed. They poured their coffee into the saucer. They were mild and unconcerned. Anna Eriksson could not understand why she had been afraid of them, why she had always believed that they would judge her. When they were provided with their second cup, when they sat delighted with the coffee trembling on the edge of their cups, and their saucers were filled with bread, she began to speak. Her words were a little solemn, but her voice was calm. Young people are imprudent. A girl who marries without thinking seriously of what she is doing can come to great grief. Who has met with worse than I? They all knew it. They had been with her and had mourned with her. Young people are imprudent. One holds one's tongue when one ought to speak, for shame's sake. One dares not to speak for fear of what people will say. He who has not spoken at the right time may have to repent it a whole lifetime. They all believed that this was true. She had heard Vik yesterday as well as many times before. Now she must tell them all something about him. An aching pain came over her when she thought of what he had suffered for her sake. Still she thought that he who had been old, ought to have had more sense than to take her, a young girl, for his wife. I did not dare to say it in my youth, but he went away from me out of pity, for he thought that I wanted to have Ericsson. I have his letter about it. She read the letter aloud for them. A tear glided demurely down her cheek. He had seen falsely in his jealousy, between Eriksson and me there was nothing then. It was four years before we were married, but I will say it now, for weak is too good to be misjudged. He did not run away from wife and child from light motives, but with good intention. I want this to be known everywhere. Captain Anderson will perhaps read the letter aloud at the meeting. I wish weak to be redressed. I know, too, that I have been silent too long, but one does not like to give up everything for a drunkard. Now it is another matter. The women sat as if turned to stone. Anna Eriksson, her voice trembling a little, said with a faint smile, Now perhaps you will never care to come to see me again. Oh, yes, indeed, you were so young. It was nothing which you could help. 
It was his fault for having such ideas. She smiled. These were the hard beaks which would have torn her to pieces. The truth was not dangerous, nor lying either. The young men were not waiting outside her door. Did she know, or did she not know, that her eldest daughter had that very morning left her home and had gone to her father? The sacrifice which Matsvik had made to save his wife's honor became known. He was admired, he was derided. His letter was read aloud at the meeting. Some of those present wept with emotion. People came and pressed his hands on the street. His daughter moved to his house. For several evenings after, he was silent at the meetings. He felt no inspiration. At last they asked him to speak. He mounted the platform, folded his hands together, and began. When he had said a couple of words, he stopped, confused. He did not recognize his own voice. Where was the lion's roar? Where the raging north wind? And where the torrent of words? He did not understand, could not understand. He staggered back. I cannot, he muttered. God gives me no strength to speak yet. He sat down on a bench and buried his head in his hands. He gathered all his power of thought to discover first what he wanted to talk about. Did he have to consider so in the old days? Could he consider now? His head whirled. Perhaps it would go if he should stand up again, place himself where he was accustomed to stand, and begin with his usual prayer. He tried. His face turned ashy gray. All glances were turned towards him. A cold sweat trickled down his forehead. He found not a word on his lips. He sat down in his place and wept, moaning heavily. The gift was taken from him. He tried to speak, tried silently to himself. What should he talk about? His sorrow was taken from him. He had nothing to say to people which he was not allowed to tell them. He had no secret to disguise. He did not need to romance. Romance left him. It was the agony of death. It was a struggle for life. He wished to hold fast that which was already gone. He wished to have his grief again in order to be able again to speak. His grief was gone. He could not get it back. He staggered forward like a drunken man to the platform again and again. He stammered out a few meaningless words. He repeated like a lesson learned by heart what he had heard others say. He tried to imitate himself. He looked for devotion in the glances, for trembling silence, quickening breaths. He perceived nothing. That which had been his joy was taken from him. He sank back into the darkness. He cursed that he, by his discourse, had converted his wife and daughter. He had possessed the most precious of gifts and lost it. His pain was extreme. 
but it is not by such grief that genius lives. He was a painter without hands, a singer who had lost his voice. He had only spoken of his sorrow. What should he speak of now? He prayed, O oh God, when honor is dumb and misjudgment speaks, give me back misjudgment. When happiness is dumb, but sorrow speaks, give me back sorrow. But the crown was taken from him. He sat there more miserable than the most miserable, for he had been cast down from the heights of life. He was a fallen king. End of part four of A Fallen King from Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft Flack Read by Lars Rolander